Thank you, worship team. Thank you for blessing us today with your song. Um, so um, I'm Pastor Chris. It's great to see you guys today. Um, if you're new, this is your first time with us, second time, third time, if you're online, whatever it is, just want to extend another welcome. I know Olivia welcomed you before, but just a special welcome. Um, we're glad that you chose to worship with us today. And um, and here at Table Life Church, our kind of unofficial motto is be here, be loved, be long, and we want you to experience that in every way. And, um, and so a uh, message today, I, I want to start off with a little kind of fun question for you all. It's actually, if you received a worship guide on your way in, it's printed in there, so feel free to take that, take notes alongside too. There's some questions there at the end if you're kind of a note taker type. If not, don't worry about it. But question I want to ask and start out with you today is, okay, we need to be honest about this, friends. When something requires assembly, do you, A, you do it yourself and you follow the instructions, right? Uh, B, you do it yourself without instructions. I don't need them, right? Uh, C, you get someone else to assemble it. Don't, don't look at them. Um, D, I don't buy things that need assembly. So, so how many of you guys in the room, those of you guys online in the chat, you can type in your answer, but how many would say that you do it yourself and you follow instructions? And you got to be honest because there's people in your household that are like looking at you too. Okay, you follow instructions. You're an instruction follower, rule follower. Okay, what about, I don't need no instructions. I'm good, right? You know it. Yep, yep. You're honest. That's, that's good. We're not looking down at anybody here. Um, who gets somebody else to just assemble? Yeah. Amen to that, right? And... Um, who just like, just doesn't buy things, like everything is pre-assembled? Yes, the smart ones in the house, right? The smart ones that are, that are here. Um, but, but as you know, most of the things that require some kind of assembly that, that you buy, you take on, um, they usually come with instructions. And, and sometimes um, they have multiple languages, Right? You can like forget Rosetta Stone. You can like flip through a, uh, an instruction book and you can learn multiple languages from French to German to Spanish to um, English, just all kinds of things. Um, some, some instructions have pictures for them. I think we have a picture of an example of that, right? There's like diagrams and you put this there and the, you know, follow number one, you're like spending like five hours trying to figure out what number one is and where things are going. Um, Ikea does a great job. They have little, little figures of people. Um, if you want to put that side, yeah. The happy, you need these things, right? The, there's no language involved, and then you do this, and then you have no idea, so you do this, right? <laughs> it's pretty smart there. They're very smart. Um, and, and, and some places that you go, you can actually pay people, pay an extra like $50 or so to um, somebody have assembled that for you, and then either show up at your house or bring it home, or they come to your house or that kind of thing. But, but some of us, if we admit it, we are cheap, and we buy the box of stuff, and then we lose hours of our life trying to assemble the thing. Oh, that's rain. Wow, that's good. Um, anyway, but anyway, we lose hours of our life trying to assemble something, and then, you know, your spouse gets on you, and you're like, you know, what are you still doing? And then you end up with, like, the extra parts. Anybody ever end up with the extra parts, right? You're like, I thought that these go somewhere and it didn't say they came with extra, but I actually have them. But the point is that, that anything that you purchase to assemble, it, it comes with assembly instructions. But I have yet to see something include the what do I do now instructions. The assembly, but not the 
oh, wow, holy, you know what? Like, what, what do I do now? But instead, what they, they, they do include is this thing, the, this little like, page I tore out of the instruction manual, this thing that um, you see all the time, troubleshooting instructions, except it's generally worthless because the trouble that, you're, that they're shooting is basically never the trouble you're actually having. You just throw the thing out the window. But, but generally speaking, we're far better at starting things than we are at fixing them. We're better starting than we are at fixing. And, and I dare say to draw the parallel today to, to relationships with people, relationships, friendships. Like We're good at starting relationships, even maybe maintaining them. But then when things get weird or awkward or we're not on the same page, often we're not sure what to do. And there's, there's no one of these that's there to help. But if, unfortunately, just like, you know, there was assemble things without the instructions, uh, it doesn't stop us from trying to do something much of the time. Um, we, we have tools that we often resort to that when things go wonky or things get awkward, we try to convince the other party, we try to convict them, make them feel guilty, we try to coerce them, and we try to control, convince, co con uh, convict, coerce, and control. And of course, we know personally that those things, when somebody does that for us, it doesn't work, but we keep doing them anyway on everybody else. But Jesus, Jesus shows us something different, though, that not using those tools that we tend to fall back on to fix things or when things get weird in our relationships, Jesus shows us a different way. And, and so today... Today we're going to talk about, um, the title here is Different Relationships, and I did give this a subtitle, it's called It's Complicated. Have you ever been in a complicated relationship? But, but this is what Peter, the Apostle Peter, talks about in his letter um, called First Peter in the New Testament Scriptures, and um, it's, a, it's a letter that's, that's written to a group of followers of Jesus after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, and we're going to look at chapter 3 today. Um, we're actually in the part 4 of this series that we've been doing over the last few weeks um, called Different on First uh, Peter, and I think it's good when we read a whole book of the Bible kind of like together, instead of just kind of taking bits and pieces, you kind of get the whole story, the whole picture. And, um, and so we've been reading Peter's letter to this persecuted church, persecuted church in, in this region of, of kind of basically like Turkey, modern day Turkey. And, and Peter wrote this letter um, to these Christians of different churches in that region um, in about 65 AD. So think about like 35 years or so after um, Jesus. And, and so he's talking to the Christians to remind them that the suffering that they're enduring, the persecution they're enduring, um, that even in the midst of the trials and the, the bad times that they're facing, they're still called to live differently. They're called to live differently. And, and the part that he gets into in this, this passage we're looking in today is, is relationships, to say that we're called to be different in relationships, even complicated ones, even complicated ones. And you have to understand something is that relationships for first century Christians were very complicated, uh, very, very complicated. You basically, in this time, you had people that were coming to faith out of all these backgrounds, from Jewish backgrounds, pagan backgrounds, Gentile backgrounds, uh, unsure backgrounds, just all these different places. And all of a sudden, they had this newfound faith in this risen Christ. God fulfilled his promises through Jesus, and they're trusting in him, and they're gathering in these little communities, basically new little families. But yet they still have relationships with everybody else. 
They have friends that aren't that. They have family members. Like they're, they're in a really weird position. You know, some of us can connect with that today. But Peter here, Peter leans into these things with some instructions. And that's what we're going to look at today is how to navigate three complicated relationships when you're following Jesus. This is kind of his instructions that go along here. And this is not all inclusive, by the way. There's lots of complicated relationships. You know that. But we're going to look at three of these, and and maybe you can relate with some of them. The first one is a relationship with an unbelieving spouse. Relationship with an unbelieving spouse. And then basically, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 kind of speaks to this this part. We're going to read this um, together now. So Peter says this. He says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So if you're having chills now, just stick with me. Okay, we're going to unpack this. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what's right and don't give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So like I said, if you're like, oh my gosh, what is she going to preach on today? Like, can we all just like have like a, just a sigh right now? Just go, ah, oh. okay, like let it out. Okay, ready. So let me tell you a little bit of story. So story, story time. Um, a number of years ago, uh, I finished seminary and I was living in a little basement of somebody's house in outside Washington, D.C. And I had a lovely couch, actually, that somebody had given me. Well, I didn't need the couch anymore because the place I was moving, um, somebody was giving me a couch there. So we were going to do an almighty couch swap with someone that I knew was moving into the area. And um, she was new to the area. She had just joined this young adult ministry that I had um, been leading. And, um, and she needed a couch. So guess what? I had a couch. She needed a couch. Bam, great situation. So I got a friend to, uh, with his truck to take the couch out of my little um, room there. And I went with him to uh, do the task of helping move a couch into somebody else's apartment. And um, this apartment was one of those that had kind of the stairs on the outside. She was up on level two, and um, you kind of had to go up the stair, and then there's like that little like, like uh, flat part, and then you have to go up again, and then you, like, you reach there. So, um, so the three of us take the couch out of the back of his truck, and we walk up uh, those stairs, and we're maneuvering around the bend, and then she opens the door, and then we realize that when we put the couch in the side of the door, there is no way to maneuver this thing around the wall that, it's, that the, the door is open to. It's kind of like one of those catty corner areas that you kind of go whoop, 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 like that. And we're trying to like shove the thing in the side, and we're like, oh my gosh, this is awful. She's like, oh, I didn't tell you about that. Or like, you know, okay, great. That's awesome. So, of course, uh, my friend Lou, who's his truck, he's very um, mechanically thinking, and he's like, okay, we're going to figure this out. So... We spent like the next like two hours talk about like assembly required, like thinking about things. We took like the legs off the couch. We're like putting them somehow, and this was an almighty work of God. 
it went through at some point. <laughs> we were able to somehow like angle it and then she pulled and then we pushed and put it in there. And of course, the way our apartment was set up, the room that it went into was like this like smaller little sitting room, not like the main living room. And um, so it wasn't exactly where she wanted it. Um, but the problem was the other room to get into the living room, it was an awkward apartment, um, had like the same deal. So guess what my friend Lou said? He said, this is it. This is it. This is where the couch is staying. And she's like, she's like looking. She's like, are you sure? She's like, yeah, this is a new home. Okay, let's go, right? Like, like now that it's here, we're just going to kind of make do with it. <laughs> and she's like, okay, you know, so we had a nice little sitting room there, do her devotions in the morning, great little place. Um, but that was the thing. It was kind of like the couch was here, not the best location for it. Somehow we got it in. But let's make do with it. It's not ideal. It's not perfect. It's not what we would choose necessarily, but let's make do with it. Now, I want to draw a parallel to the scripture that we just read here. Um, talking about marriage, especially in the first century, ancient, in the ancient times, ancient world, um, marriage was a contract, a contract of property. Women were seen as property. Marriages were not chosen for love. They were arranged between families as a trading off of people. And, and so you imagine that in this scenario, that women who discovered Jesus, discovered this way of Jesus and who this Jesus was, who gave freedom in Christ, equality in Christ, that you have men and women working together, you have slaves, masters together. Um, it, it was interesting that a lot of women at that time came to faith in Jesus, some of them because of that. And, and actually, um, in the first century, that was one of the primary ways that faith in Jesus spread was through women. Think about that, through women. There's people that were kind of like cast to the side because at this time in history, um, as in some places in the world today, girls were given away when they were born or they were sent out on the street to die as babies. Um, some were starved. They were considered an expensive nuisance because the father would have to pay money basically in order to have, um, have the, his daughter be married. Um, but, but the Christians refused that. Christians refused to treat girls and women this way. And that's why at this time in the ancient world, there were more Christian women than men, to believe it or not. There were more Christian women than men. And so the result of that was there were a lot of Christian women that were married to men who did not believe, who were not believers. That was a lot of situations. And you have to note something here is that Peter in the scripture, he's talking to women, and then we're going to get to the guys so you're not left out. So the, the, he's talking to women that, that were already married. This is not dating relationships. This is not considering who to, but he's talking to women who were already married that had come to faith in Jesus and their spouse didn't believe. Um, and, and so the scripture also, we have to understand, is specifically talking about this scenario. That's what Peter is talking about here. This is not a generalization on all marriages of all time. This is specifically talking about one spouse who believes and one who doesn't. And, and, and that's really what he's describing here. But the first thing that you notice, the very beginning of the scripture, verse 1, he says this. He says, wives in the same way, in the same way. So whenever you see in the same way or likewise, you need to back up to what came before because there's a parallel here, a parallel. Because you have to ask, same way as what? As who? As what, what was going on? And if you back up to the previous chapter, 
He just finished talking about how somebody should respond when living within two very unjust systems. Two very unjust systems. First, the government. We talked about the guy named Nero. He was the emperor at the time who was like happy killing people and burning people and setting things afire and blaming Christians. And he says, Peter tells, hey, live under the government, like submit to them. Like what? An unjust system. The second one was a servant and a master saying that even if you suffer underneath a master, then, then you, you need to receive that, but you need to do so in a way that's respectable to Christ. So he's talking about these unjust systems, and so he's not agreeing with them. You have, we have to understand that he's not agreeing with these unjust systems, but what he is doing is being strategic, being strategic. Because the easy thing to do, whether it's an unjust government or as a servant or as a a, a wife, um, would be to retaliate, would be to try to destroy, would be to try to overthrow. But Peter, he's saying here, no, no, the way of Jesus is different here. And let me just give you a side note here that is that he's not talking about an abusive situation, by the way. This does not pertain to abuse. But, But the thing that he's trying to communicate here is first, uh, to, to these wives who are married to unbelieving husbands to say, watch your witness. That's the important thing here. Watch your witness. And he's saying the aim is not simply to get along happily, but to show your faith because you are actually the stronger one. Think about that. You are actually the stronger one. Show your faith with the goal of, of winning your husband over. Basically, the, the way of Jesus is subversive love and respect. Allowing that to have the authority, allowing Jesus to have the way into that marriage. And so it's kind of like along the lines of, you see, reading the Gospels, along the lines of Jesus telling people, he said things like, if someone wants to take your shirt, give them your coat too. If someone forces you to walk one mile, walk two. Like he's, he's saying along these lines, like once again, that, that, hey, somebody that's enforcing this on you, they're not in the right position, but it's a subversive love and power that you're showing here. Subversive love and respect. And, and when he talks about this, this reference, verse to the uh, adornment, you know, what, what to wear, and then uh, about the, the kind of Sarah reference, saying, okay, well, submit, you know, submit to your, to your husband in this way. Um, one thing we have to understand in Scripture is that we don't really know for sure the tone that these things were written in. You know, sometimes you can read a text message in two very different ways. Well, some scholars actually believe that his reference here to Sarah about Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, was actually a sarcastic comment on Peter. This is an interesting thought. Because if you look at the time that Sarah said, called Abraham her Lord, it's in Genesis 18, by the way, and it's actually in a time when she is mentally calling him Lord because she's doubting him. And it's kind of, she's laughing at him. And so, so you have to understand, like, we have to understand, like, maybe it's like a, there's a sarcastic tone to what he's saying here. But, but that's, that's what we understand is that there, there's a part here that he's telling the show that what you value is different. What you value is different. Not based on what's the outside is what the culture says or others would say, you know, about, well, hey, what you should wear and what you shouldn't and, and all that kind of stuff. But he's, he's affirming that your value as women, your value as people comes from Christ. Comes from Christ. Not your relationship, not from what you look like or what you do, 
But your value is something so much deeper that none of that can affect or take away. And so holding to that, to watch your witness, to show what you value is different. Um, of course, you know, the guys don't get off the hook in this situation. And there were, there were Christian men who were married to women who didn't believe. And so, um, but of course, many men over the years have quoted verses 1 through 6 to say, women submit, women submit. And they forget verse 7. Because you see verse 7, husbands, what? In the same way. Read that again. In the same way. It's the same situation. Husbands, in the same way, when you are in a situation that you have an unbelieving spouse, that that they're living in the same way to honor and to elevate their unbelieving wives. And then he uses this, this term, spiritually weaker vessel. Some people refer to that as, okay, women on the whole are weaker than men physically. Okay, you get that. But perhaps he's referring to them as spiritually weaker because they're not following Christ. They're not following Christ. If that's the, the gist of the, this relationship he's describing, he's saying, treat them as an equal anyway. Treat them as an equal anyway to these husbands. Treat them as an equal. That, that's how Christ sees them. That's a witness to Christ. To not bully your wife into submission to do what you want, but to treat your wife as an equal who can also be an heir to what Jesus has given, new eternal life. And therefore, that enables you to pray. That enables you to freely pray with and for. And, and one thing to, to understand, too, is that in, in the ancient Near East, uh, covenant relationships, um, they involved basically a covenant between two parties, a stronger party and a weaker party. And we see this reflected in God's covenants throughout the Old Testament scriptures. But in these types of covenants, the stronger party typically held most of the resources and the power brought into a relationship, but chose to enter into a mutual covenant where those resources were put at the disposal of the weaker party. It's like us and God, you know, there's that parallel. But he's saying this, that Peter is reminding the, these spouses, reminding them that in a marriage between a believer and a non-believer, the believer is the one in the strong position with the resources and the power. The believer is the one with the resources. And therefore, therefore, leverage your authority and your resources for freedom for the other party, for them. Leverage your authority for them. You know, to, to kind of adapt to draw a parallel to, to today, you know, saying you could blank, but you choose not to. You could blank, but you choose not to. Instead, to act out of that position of, of power and authority, but instead to serve and use love as that motivating force. And the reality, friends, is that in this time, and also in our time, and maybe you're in that situation, you know, you're married to somebody that is not a follower of Jesus, the reality is that not every unbelieving spouse is going to come to faith. That's the reality. Or, or you may never see it. You know, you may never see it, but, but he's saying, though, that your actions, though, aren't really dependent on the other party doing their part, because in that covenant relationship, you keep your side of the covenant. You keep, you act in your part. You know, the difference starts with you, not dependent on the other party. And so, so that's what he's kind of unpacking. It's a very complicated thing. Imagine it was then, it is now, that, that type of thing. But to watch your witness, to show what you value is different, to leverage your authority for them, 
But he doesn't stop there because that's not the only complicated relationship that was going on at that time and also that we face. The second is with different brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the second relationship that he relates to. And he continues in verses 8 to 9. He says, finally, all of you, all y'all, yins, used guys, whatever, um, you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So, so it's with these new brothers and sisters in Christ. And imagine, especially at this time, like there were people together that never, ever in a million years would have been sitting in the same room. <laughs> you had people that were of all economic places economically and socioeconomically and even racially. And, and you had people that were relating. So there was a sense of like, oh, like those people, like we never did that before, Right. I mean, even like, like here, Table Life Church, like look around, right? You'd never probably be in the same room with these people or be in the same family elsewhere if you actually admitted it, right? We're weird. We're all weird. And we're all from different backgrounds and places. And there's a million stories that are in this room. And imagine the first century that was even weirder. Or masters and slaves. There were women and men. There were pagans, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, tax collectors, business owners, street people. There was all these people. But this is your family. Whoa, you know, you're like, I thought my family was weird, right? <laughs> but you're coming together as this new family, new brothers and sisters. And in that, learning to love one another. First, to, he says, to prioritize unity, not uniformity. Prioritize unity, be like-minded unity. And, and we get these two confused, unity and uniformity. Unity is, is be togetherness despite differences. Uniformity says we have no differences. So unity is a sense of that we can come together around Jesus, even though we may be at different places in different parts and pieces. I, I mean, we do this, you know, when you have friends that are, that are Dallas fans or Steelers fans or I don't know, and you can still like eat dinner together, right? You're like in the same room or, or you know, you, you have bumper stickers on your car about like, you can still be prioritized unity, but not necessarily uniformity. And that's the beauty of the church. We're at different places spiritually, you know. You know, we have some mature believers. We have people that are new to faith, people trying to figure out where they are and what they believe. And, and that's the beauty is that we can still be, have unity here, but also there's a power here that it doesn't just stop to say, okay, be like-minded, but he also says be sympathetic and love one another, meaning show you care. Show that you care. The tools that you have are sympathy, love, compassion, humility. That's, that's all by the Spirit. And friends, these are habits that Peter's saying here, practice within, practice in the body, so that way you get better outside the body. Practice within the body. New habits are learned in the context of the church which he says in verse 8, to be practiced outside in the wider world. I mean, I think going back to like childhood, right? That's why mama said not to lick your fingers at the table, right? Not to lick your fingers when it was just you and your family sitting around eating dinner. Why? Because you may do it out there, right? You may do it at the restaurant. You want to get embarrassed, right? That you do what you do at home often transfers to what happens in public. That, but in a good way, it can go the opposite that you get so used to blessing people, so used to loving people, so much to being compassionate for people in here, 
that it becomes naturally out there to whomever. That, that, that's where we prioritize unity, not, not uniformity. You show that you care. Even though people may be different, you know, getting along with these new brothers and sisters, that's a hard relationship to navigate. But these are the tools that he gives to use. But then last and not least is, is this third relationship. This third relationship that I don't know about you, but often is the most difficult with those who are hostile. With those who are hostile to you. So he continues, verse 10 to 14, he says, For whoever would love life and see good days must, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Uh, if you've ever had a rental car for any reason, um, you know that uh, a lot of times, you know, especially if it's like a different um, brand than like your, the normal car that you drive, um, you know the feeling that when you first get in and you have to like look around for like where things are because it may be different, right? You have to look around for the windshield wipers, you think they're on the right or in that little bar that you have to click here, but it's really like over to the side. Um, where the startup is, whether it's a, a button you press or you have to put a key in, um, where the lights are, you know. And even so, there's times when, when you'll go back, like, you know, maybe you've been driving the car, maybe you, it's a replacement for your car getting fixed or whatever, and, and you go in and you sit down and then like you go back to your same habits and you're like, oh, okay, we're right. I have to click that button instead. And we resort to habits and what we're used to. And you imagine that the, these first country Christians, they had to navigate this, this strange new world of being different. That the habits that they had were, were a struggle. And, and so that's where like we too have to recognize too in, in our day that the world is different. You know, the world that we're in is different. It's different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, it, what's, th there's no such thing as the, the Christian Western civilization anymore. Uh, and actually, we, we here in the United States, we, we rejoin, we rejoin most Christians elsewhere in the world that normally encounter things that, that are turned against them. Normally that, that are, are ostracized or put to the side. And, and that's been a normal thing for most places in the world. But for us, it may not be easy to unlearn old habits and learn new ones. But our reaction often to when we receive opposition or, or hostility is often to be like a swing set, honestly. You know, to either turn in one way where we disappear into the culture, we never say anything, we never do anything, we never make any difference, or go the opposite way and cut ourselves completely off. But see, there's a different answer, and neither of those is, is good. That, that Peter's answering the question here, how to behave in a world that doesn't understand and is potentially hostile. And what he does, interesting enough, is that he quotes a psalm, Psalm 34, Psalm 34, which emphasizes the answer here. How, what do you do with those who are hostile to you? Seek peace and follow after it. Seek peace, follow after it. That's his emphasis. Seek peace. Don't expect peace to come to you. You have to do the work and learn the new habit, even if you're not used to it. And, and so that, that's something. Seek peace and follow after it. Seek peace and follow after it. When you receive hostility, opposition, uh, seek peace 
and follow after it, pursue that. But what does that look like? Well, three things that came to mind and that he emphasizes here. The first part is watch your mouth, don't be a jerk, and trust God on this one. Watch your mouth. He says that. You turn your tongue from evil and lips from deceitful speech. Watch your mouth. Watch what you say. And I would say, watch this too, right? Watch what you say. Don't be a jerk. He's saying, don't be a jerk. Don't live into that. Don't live into that. Who, you know, who's going to harm you if you do good, right? They can't touch that. If you suffer for what's right, you're blessed. But trust God in this one. Trust God as a God of justice, as a God of grace, and as a God of mercy. See, you may be mocked and you may be tempted to lash out or respond or mock back, but then you're no longer different. You're just like everybody else. See, ultimately, what Peter's arguing here is that when we, when we seek to avoid suffering at any cost, we reveal that our hope lies more in our personal comfort than in the sufficiency of Christ. When we seek that, and that's why our motivation for how we navigate any kind of difficult relationship is crucial. The main motivation always, always has to be that we reflect Jesus. Always that we reflect Jesus. The greatest tool for navigating any complicated relationship is a relationship with Jesus. Something that can't change or can't be touched. And that's why he says in verse 15, starting there, he says, but in your hearts, revere who? Christ as Lord. Christ as Lord. Not Nero, not what the other person's saying, not the person on the street, whatever. Christ as Lord. And he says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those, those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. See, revere Christ as Lord. Interesting enough, Nero, any emperor at the time, was, was told, the people were told to be call them Lord. But he's saying here, no, call them Lord. Be reminded that he is Lord. That it's a subversive reminder of who is really in charge, no matter what, even if it doesn't look like it out there. See, Peter's point is that Jesus already has overcome the world. And so, and have that, have that response too. Be prepared to give an answer. Um, sometimes this verse is used in like um, apologetic styles of evangelism, you know, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. But he's really saying that Christian faithfulness in the midst of suffering is a big witness to those around you. People ask why we're hopeful in suffering because that hope reveals our faith. And so in complicated, difficult relationships, it's an incredible opportunity to demonstrate the grace and the mercy of our God and the hope that's beyond this world that's been confirmed through us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, which he points out here, who, who doesn't point fingers from afar and they do this, do this, but who has been there, done that, and been through it too. Who knows what it's like to first have family reject him? Who knows what it's like to have those closest run away? Who knows what it's like to be betrayed? Who knows what it's like to suffer in the body? You know, when you're going through something and you know, someone tells you it's going to be okay, doesn't it have more power and authority when it comes from someone who has a clue and who has been there? That's Jesus. He knows it. He understands. Not a, a far off God, but God who, who stooped down to serve and to love and to be among us. 
And Peter's making the point that the difficulty of, of navigating these complicated relationships, it actually brings up us in line with what Jesus himself experienced. But the main thing, kind of summing this all up, is that wherever you are, whatever things you're facing in friendships, relationships, different can start with you. Different can start here. Different can start there. And there may not be an instruction manual, instruction manual that'll give you the perfect thing to do. There may not be a promise that everything is gonna go peachy keen and it's gonna go well for you. And, and no, you may not be able to control others' actions or reactions or responses. You know, there, there's deeply embedded behaviors in us. There is something called generational sin that, that often that we get into in our families and in our relationships. But even if nothing changes in our relationship, something extraordinary changes in you. That we need to live life not having regrets in our relationships. Saying, oh, I wish I, I man, I should have, I should have. That different can start with you. That you begin to see the spouse or the new Christian or the hostile person as loved by God too, as loved by God. So friends, whether you find yourself facing difficulty or comfort today, first rejoice, it's not the end. Second, know that you have a God who knows it. Jesus walked this earth and was among us and, and will not abandon you and will remain faithful to you no matter the turn of events that you don't have to fear. But also know this, that different can start with you. Let's pray.